Church, it's good to be with you today. We're going to be continuing in the gospel of Matthew today. Last week, we looked at Jesus sending out his 12 disciples. Jesus sending out his 12 disciples on their first mission trip, as it were, to go and preach and declare the message of the gospel and to go and demonstrate and serve people in the power of the gospel, to do both of these things, declare the message, demonstrate the power. And these young disciples of Jesus, many of them just teenagers, might have thought and we might think, okay, Jesus, we'll go do that. We'll go out into this world and we'll share the gospel. We'll share Jesus with people. And of course, Jesus wants us to obey him, but he first wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt what kind of response we're going to get. Jesus wants us to know what the cost of following him and obeying him in this world will be. Jesus wants us to know that even if we go out, even if we're to go out with the most loving and humble posture possible in sharing the gospel with this world, that this world is going to ultimately reject us. And so he says in Matthew 10, verse 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And we talked about it last week, but in the text today, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25, Jesus is going to double down on this warning. He's going to tell his disciples that they're going to be arrested, that they're going to be delivered over to courts and to synagogues, that they're going to be whipped and beaten and even killed, that they're going to be betrayed by their family members. And so Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Austin Stone. Everybody's going to hate you. But you know, as I was thinking about, God, why in your providence this text for this Christmas season, right? And I think it's because this too is an intricate part of the Christmas story that we can't forget, we can't neglect. What we need, what the world needs, isn't just this fuzzy, warm Christmas message that will keep us happy and joyful as long as the Christmas lights are up and things are looking pretty and the Christmas presents are under the tree, but we need a Christmas message that will make us unshakable. We need a Christmas message that will keep us secure even when everything is falling apart. And we have to realize that this is a part of the Christmas story From the very beginning, from the very moment that Jesus was born into this world, this was the world that he was born into. From the very moment that he was born into this world, that the world was trying to kill him. If you remember, back in Matthew chapter 2, that King Herod sent out his soldiers to kill every baby little boy under the age of two, born in the town of Bethlehem, in hopes of killing Jesus. And yet he still came. And this is the Christmas message that we have. And so following Jesus in this world means that we're going to be rejected as he was. And so Jesus tells them in Matthew 10, verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. He tells his young disciples and he's telling us this is the cost. This is the cost of following me. This is the price that you're going to have to pay for trusting me and obeying me. You're going to be hated. You're going to be rejected by this world. But, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So right now, as we sit in Austin, Texas, on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning, it's going to be 76 degrees in December, right? 
I don't know if that's good or bad. Maybe it's persecution. So there's not a single one of us sitting here this morning worried about our doors being kicked in and the police raiding in to arrest us. But it's very much a worry right now with our brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping in the underground churches of China. It's not even crossing our minds that a mob of religious fanatics are going to come in here with machetes and slaughter us, but it's very much on the minds of our brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping in Nigeria. There's not a single one of us thinking about, oh, what if one of my family members turns me into the authorities to be executed for my faith, but it's very much a regular threat that our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing in North Korea. And so right now, As followers of Jesus, 2019 in Austin, Texas, the thought of enduring to the end doesn't sound that daunting. Yeah, I I don't know why I wouldn't, right? And some texts we look at in the Bible, it's immediately applicable because we're going through it right now. But texts like today, we need to hear, we need to tuck away, we need to hide in our hearts because at minimum, it should awaken us outside of our own little worlds and to think of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through these things right now, right now going through these things. And for us to pray for them and say, God, will you please be with them? Will you please endure them to the very end? No matter what they're going through, help them to feel your presence. Help us to feel, help them to feel like a courage and a boldness in the midst of it. But also, this is the type of text that we need to tuck away and hide in our hearts because one day, because one day, this level of rejection, this level of hatred and persecution, it may come our way too. It may come our way too. And so as we look at this text together, I think the question we need to all be asking is, I believe today, I believe today, but will I believe tomorrow? I think the question we have to be asking is, I'm following Jesus today. Under the current climate, under the current conditions and the level of rejection that I'm facing today, but will I be following Jesus 10 years from now? And will I endure to the very end, even at the cost of following Jesus in this world, in our city, increases? And it keeps increasing. And it keeps increasing. Will I endure to the very end, no matter what the cost? Church, will you endure to the end? Jesus said that in the end, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So how can we endure to the end? As we look at the text today, let's look at three ways in which we can endure and stay faithful to Jesus, even to the very end. We need to, number one, be like the serpent and the dove. Be like the serpent and the dove. Jesus says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Second, we need to count the cost and the promises. We need to count the cost and the promises of following Jesus in this world. And third, we need to pursue Jesus. We need to make him the goal, pursue Jesus and his rejection. First, Jesus calls us to be like the serpent and the dove, Matthew 10, 16. And behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Look at this. Jesus is saying, because I'm sending you out, as sheep amongst wolves, because I'm sending you out at such a threat level into such a perilous environment, you need to be wise. You need to be wise as serpent, and you need to be innocent, innocent as doves. First, he says, be wise as serpents. The Greek word that is used there is phronimos. 
It's a word that has the idea of being sharp-minded, thoughtful, and cunning. As I was studying this, I found Charles Spurgeon offers some insightful observations regarding our call to be wise as serpents. He said, serpents are an exceedingly wise creature. Why? How do we know that? Because they still exist. Because everybody hates snakes. We want them dead, but they're still around. And so Charles Spurgeon asks, why are serpents so good at preserving themselves in the midst of such a hostile environment? Do you guys see this? We too are in this hostile environment. Because look at the way that they act, he said. It glides along very quietly. It can hiss, but it does not often do so. It slips off quietly, gracefully, swiftly, without noise. This kind of serpent-like living reminds us of what Paul said to us in 1 Thessalonians 4, that we are to live a quiet and peaceable life. Or when he tells us in Romans 12, so far as it depends on you, Christian, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so even though we are called to speak the truth into this world, we're not to be brash about it. We're not to be in your face. We're to be gracious and peaceable in the way that we speak. We are called to speak the truth, even into this hostile world, but we need to speak that truth in love. Our speech seasoned with salt. Spurgeon makes another interesting observation regarding the serpent. He said, it's famous, it's famous for finding his way where no other creature could enter. Any little space, any tiny opening will be sufficient for his purpose. His form is adapted to progress among obstacles. His form is adapted to progress among obstacles. You may block the way to other creatures, but he will wriggle in somehow. So should it be with us. If we cannot get men, men's hearts one way, we must try another. If you cannot induce them to read the gospel, get them to hear it. If you cannot induce them to hear a sermon, drop a verse into their ears. Wriggle your way in, he's saying, in the wisest way, in the gracious way possible. Find a way. Don't give up too easily on people. This Greek word, phronimos, wise as serpents, is the same Greek word used to translate the Old Testament Hebrew in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the serpent was more crafty, it says. It was more phronimos. And what did the serpent do? He made his way into Eve's mind and her heart, right? Craftily, cunningly, he wriggled in, wisely questioning what she believed. The serpent asked, did God really say? Do you really believe what he said? The serpent was absolutely wrong and evil in what it was saying and in what it was trying to accomplish, but it was incredibly wise or phronimos in how it was doing it. The serpent didn't come out confrontationally saying, no, God didn't say that. In fact, where is your God? Where is he? He doesn't even exist. The serpent didn't argue, you're so stupid to believe what you believe. Just eat what you want and live the way that you want to live. That's not what Phronimos does. Phronimos asks questions. I hear what you're saying, what you believe, but do you really believe that? Why do you believe that? Can you tell me more? The serpent, with great Phronimos, turned Eve's gaze away from God and onto the fruit and showed her the beauty of it. 
and made her imagine the taste of it until, as verse 6 tells us, until she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes until she took of the fruit and she ate. And so in a sense, this is what we're to do to an unbelieving world that desperately wants to keep partaking of that fruit, desperately wants to keep rejecting God and his ways. Jesus is saying to us, use your phronomos. Don't go in there trying to fight people and confront people, telling that they're absolutely wrong and evil for what they believe, but go in cunningly and winsomely asking questions. Can you tell me what you believe? Is that really your view of God? And why is that? And instead of saying, you're a sinner for eating that fruit, you're going to go to hell for believing what you believe, living the way that you live. Instead, just like the serpent turned Eve's gaze away from God and onto the fruit by pointing to the beauty and the goodness of the fruit until Adam and Eve let go of God and took of the fruit with great phronomos, turned their gaze away from the world and onto Jesus, show them how beautiful he is. Help them imagine what it's like to have someone so fiercely pursue you and love you and never lets you go. Show them the wonder and the beauty and the awe of Jesus until they let go of the fruit and take a hold of Jesus. Christians who live as wise as serpents, even in the midst of a hostile world, can gently, cunningly, without unnecessary confrontation, we can reverse what happened in the garden. That's why Jesus also says, be innocent as doves. The word innocent there literally means harmless. Nobody looks up at the sky and yells, run, the doves are coming, right? Doves are harmless. We're to be harmless as doves. We're called to be gentle, not so easily angered and offended all the time. When we're confronted with contradiction and slander, we're called to bear it. We're called to bear it with tenderness and quietness, not to fire back in a shock and awe Twitter rampage, right? Little birds just dying everywhere. Peter says, Jesus too was in a hostile environment. Jesus too was in a hostile world, and he left us an example of how to be persecuted, how to suffer. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. A call to be innocent, harmless as doves at the end of the day is a call not to defend ourselves, but to trust in God who judges justly. Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When the world arrested him and beat him and said all sorts of false things against him, when they nailed him to the cross, Jesus didn't defend himself. If he did, if Jesus took up for himself and called down a legion of angels, none of us would be saved. No one ever turned to Jesus because Christians were so good at defending themselves. No one ever got saved because Christians were so good and clever with our comebacks. Well, that was a clever comeback. Give my life to Jesus, right? People got saved. We got saved because Jesus laid his life down. And so we need to at least be a people willing to lay our pride down. Lay down your need to be right all the time. Theodore Beza said, it belongs to the church of God. It belongs to the church of God to receive blows rather than to inflict them. To receive blows rather than to inflict them. But she is an anvil 
that has worn out many hammers. Church, you're an anvil. That's how you're going to endure to the end. Because you're an anvil. The world may come at us with their hostility, hate, and rejection. They may even come with arrests and machetes and nails and crosses. But we're an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Rejection, persecution, killing has always been the story of the church. It's always been. But we're still here. We're still here because we're an anvil. Another way to endure in our faithfulness to Jesus is by counting the cost of following Jesus. We've got to count the cost of following him. But not only that, we have to count the promises of following Jesus as well. So let's just go through this section, verses 17 through 23, and look at the cost and the promises associated with those costs. First, there's going to be the cost of being arrested by authorities, Jesus said. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. These things, of course, happen to the disciples, but they're happening today. Christians are being turned in. They're being arrested and being thrown into labor camps. That's a cost. That's a cost. We need to consider that cost. We need to count that cost, not later, but right now when there's no threat of it, so that when it comes, we've already settled it in our minds. There's a story of a Romanian pastor named Joseph Son, and he was arrested and arrested. He was beaten and beaten for years, and when the communist regime finally collapsed and there was no more persecution, he was asked, how in the world did you endure through all that? How how in the world did you go through all that without denying Jesus? And his answer was, his answer was that he counted the cost. Even before the cost was demanded of him, he, he went to the text and he imagined what the cost would be could be for following Jesus in this world. And he had already determined it in his mind that Jesus was worthy to pay whatever the cost. And so when the demand for the cost came his way, he didn't have to answer the question, should I pay that cost? Because he had already determined. It was already settled in his mind that he would pay no matter what the cost. But it's not just the cost. What's the promise associated with the cost of being arrested? Jesus said in verse 18, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. To bear witness before them, it says. Jesus is saying, you may be arrested for my sake, but your arrest will never be pointless. You may be persecuted for my sake, but your persecution will never be pointless. Your arrest, your persecution will always have a purpose. And what purpose is that? So that you can bear witness to the judge to the governor, to the king, everyone who's at your trial, everyone who will hear about your trial. Well, that sounds like a lot of pressure. What do I need to say? Well, here's another promise, verse 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So don't be anxious, Jesus said. Why? Because everything you've ever studied in God's word, every sermon you've ever heard, anything and everything that God has ever taught you, he's going to bring it to mind in exactly the right way, the exact word and phrase. And if that's not enough, don't miss this precious promise. Jesus says that the spirit of your father is going to speak through you. What does that mean? This means that you won't ever stand trial alone. 
You might be persecuted, but you won't ever be persecuted alone. That your heavenly father is going to be right there with you. He'll be right there with you. Another cost is the cost of family betrayal. Verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, this is an almost unbelievable one. But this too is happening today. In places like North Korea, the threat for becoming a Christian is not only that you'll be killed, but that your entire family will be killed. The parents, children, siblings, even aunts and uncles, if, they, if the family keeps it a secret. And so because of that, dri- being driven by fear, parents will report children and children will report parents if they suspect that any one of them has become a Christian. And so what's the promise associated with such a high cost? The promise is that Jesus will make up for every loss. That Jesus will make up for every loss. Look at Mark 10, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is promising here that you may lose, you may lose in following Jesus in this world. You may lose your home and your possessions. And even more than that, you may lose your brothers and sisters. You may lose your mother and father and even your children. But his promise to us is that somehow, I don't know how, but somehow he's going to make up for everything we've ever lost in following Jesus. That if you have to lose the security of owning land and owning possessions, that you're going to get back a hundred times the security and the peace that comes from knowing that you have treasures in heaven, that you have a prize and a reward that's waiting for you that no man can take from you, that if you ever do have to lose a mother's nearby affection and concern for you, that you're going to get back a hundred times the affection and the concern from Jesus himself who promises to ever be with you. And a third cost. I think this one is really practical in its instruction. Jesus says in verse 23, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. He said, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Jesus here gives his disciples, gives us the permission to flee persecution if we can. Why? Because we're afraid of persecution? No, because when one town drives us out, the promise is that there's going to be another town that needs to hear the gospel. And it may surprise you to think of this, but if you read through the book of Acts, and you'll be amazed to see how much of the church's early preachers spent their time fleeing from one place to another, preaching the gospel all the way, preaching Jesus all the way. And in doing so, the gospel reaching more places, not less. And in doing so, gospel reaching more places than it would have if there weren't any persecution. And so what does this mean? What is the precious promise? The precious promise here is that persecution cannot ultimately stop the spread of the gospel. We may be forced to flee from one place to another, but the, but the gospel is going to keep on going. Persecution cannot and will not stop the spread of the gospel. It will only serve it. 
It will only serve to advance it. And so first, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And second, we need to count the cost and the promises in following Jesus. And lastly, we need to embrace Jesus and his rejection. We need to embrace Jesus and his rejection. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In verse 25, Jesus says, it is enough or it is sufficient for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. What Jesus is saying is that this should be the goal of every believer for us to be like Jesus. And so one of the most critical questions we need to ask ourselves in striving to endure to the end is, what do we think is enough? What do we think is enough? In other words, when we think about our life, our hopes and our goals of what will we say, if I can just have that, then my life will have meaning. Of what will we say, if I can just accomplish that, then I'll be truly satisfied. Of what will we say, if I can just experience that, then I'll be able to look at my life and say, that's enough. That's sufficient. I'll have run the good race and I've fought the good fight and I could close my eyes in peace. How do you measure your life is the question. And so if you say, if I can just be beautiful, if I can just be super fit, if I can just have that kind of body and have everyone think that I look good, then that'll be enough. If that's sure enough, Jesus is saying you won't ever make it because that's not me. Isaiah 53, 2 says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's not what his life was all about. Or if you say, if I can just be comfortable, if I can just have enough, if I can just accomplish enough, if I can just do enough so that I can live my life in relative comfort and ease, then that'll be enough. If that's sure enough, Jesus is saying you won't endure because there may come a day when you get fired from your job and your house gets taken away because there may come a day when following Jesus means that you get whipped and flogged and even delivered over to death. And so if comfort is your ultimate, if that's what you're ultimately going after in this world, then we're not gonna make it either. Or if you say, if I can just be liked, if I can just be the first to be picked on a team, if I can just be respected, if people would just look up to me, then that'll be enough. If that's your enough, Jesus is saying you won't endure to the end either because people looked at Jesus and said, who in the world could you ever be? You're from a filthy little town called Nazareth and, and you're an illegitimate child. We don't even know who your dad really is. Verse 25 says they call them Beelzebul. They literally call them a demon. And when given a choice to free from prison Jesus or a murderer, people chose the murderer. Being liked can't be our ultimate. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And if you more nobly say, if I can just be loved, if I can just be loved by my mom, my dad, if I can just be loved by my husband or my wife, if I can just be loved by my children, then that'll be enough. If that's your enough, if that's your ultimate, I'm not saying that can't be your desire, I'm saying if that's your ultimate, you won't endure to the end either. 
Because we live in a world where because you're a Christian, your parents might turn you in and your children might deliver you over. If being loved by your family members is your ultimate, the moment they say to you, you need to choose, me or Jesus. You need to choose. It's going to be your family or Jesus. You'll choose your family. And if you're thinking, oh, that'll never happen to me. Again, step outside of yourselves, out of your own little world, and imagine the little Muslim boy at school, perhaps by the obedience of your child, heard the gospel. They were compelled by it. Jesus saved them. And so they go home. They share with their family. Jesus saved me. I'm a Christian now. And their family says, you have to choose. Us or Jesus. Us or Jesus. And so how can we endure to the end? Even if we get arrested, even if we get beaten, even if we are hated and rejected by all, including by our family, how can we fight to endure through all of that and stay faithful to Jesus? By having our enough be Jesus. By having our enough be Jesus, being like Jesus. What a beautiful statement when a Christian says, it is enough for me to be like my Jesus. To be able to say my life will have meaning. I can truly be satisfied. I'll have run the good race and I've fought the good fight. If I can just be like my Jesus, even if it means being rejected as he was, to be able to say, and I don't ask for more than that. I don't ask to be loved by the world. I don't ask to be famous. I don't ask to be beautiful. I don't ask to be rich. I don't ask to be comfortable. I don't ask to be accepted or respected. And I don't ask to skip out on the pain and the suffering and the persecution. I only ask, I only ask to be like my Jesus. He is enough for me. That's how we endure. When Jesus himself, and us being like him, us following his ways, even through the rejection, if he becomes our enough. But in closing, is our enduring to the end ultimately dependent upon us and what we do? Is our enduring to the end ultimately dependent on us and what we do? To be sure, there are things that we needed to do, what, how we need to live and obey, just like we've been talking about, so that we can not only endure, but flourish in our enduring. But the ultimate hope in our enduring to the end doesn't lie in what we do, it lies in what Christ has done. We're going to be rejected in this world. We are. But it was Jesus who was truly rejected. It was only him who was truly rejected on the cross as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He received the only kind of rejection that could have truly destroyed us so that we can endure any lesser rejection that the world may throw our way. Because he received on behalf of us, he absorbed for us the only kind of rejection that could have truly destroyed us and in doing so offered us the only ultimate acceptance. Because we have that unshakable, ultimate acceptance, we could endure any other kind of rejection. And so church, not because of what we have done or because of what we're able to do, but because of what Christ has done and what he's able to do, perseverance and enduring to the end is not the lot of the few, but is the common lot of every believer. Because of the cross of Jesus, enduring is not just for super-Christians. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, enduring to the end is not just for super-missionaries. It's not just for the super-obedient and the super-faithful. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, enduring to the end is for 
Christians. It's for Christians. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, enduring to the end is for Christians that fail. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, enduring to the end is for believers that keep falling into that same temptation. It's for Christians that are at the end of themselves thinking, surely God's done with me. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Or think about it in this way. What kind of a savior would he be? What kind of a savior would he be if he could only save the strong but not the weak? What kind of a savior would he be, and of what good news would his birth be if he only came for the obedient but not the wayward? What kind of a savior would he be and how precious would his blood be if it could only blot out sins for a little while or if it could only deal with certain kinds of sins? Where would the glory of Calvary be? What kind of a savior would he be and what kind of intercessor would he be if after praying, Father, I pray that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am and then we not finally be brought to him where he is if we're not endured to to the end, he would have failed in his interceding for us. If we're not endured to the very end, he would have failed in his saving us. If we're not kept to the very end, his blood wouldn't be precious. His cross would be shame and his birth wouldn't be good news. But church, it is good news. It is good news because our Jesus has not failed and he will not fail in his saving work towards us. His blood is precious. His cross is his glory, and his birth is the greatest news that the world has ever heard. We're his, and he is ours, and he's going to keep us. He's going to endure us to the very end. The good work that he started in you, he will finish. He will complete. The church in China depends on him to do so. The church in Nigeria is depending on him to do so. The church in North Korea, we are depending on him to do that saving work, not just for a little while, but all the way to the end. He's our only hope. Hallelujah, what a savior. That's why he came. This is why he came. And so church, let's be a people who take seriously the cost. Jesus isn't wasting words. He's put it in here for a reason, right? And for now, we have the common mercy of being able to follow Jesus and share Jesus with this world without the fear of rejection and being threatened to such levels that our brothers and sisters in Christ are receiving. So let's let's use it for an opportunity to pray for them and let us use it to be prepared, to be prepared and to be ready and have it settled in our minds. Let's pray together. So Father, we use this moment right now to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who are fellowshipping in the sufferings of Jesus, who right now in this very moment are in labor camps, who right now in this very moment are in homes and secretly trying to live out their faith, any moment afraid that someone might kick in the doors. 
Lord, we pray that you would be near to them. Lord, we ask that in the only way that you can, even in a supernatural, miraculous way, if you would, you would show them that you are a God who is near. That they're not being persecuted alone. That they're not suffering alone. You are with them and near them. Father, help them know that Jesus is worth it. Help them know that this gospel is true. Will you endure them to the very end? And Father, I pray for our church. Lord, we ask that we would be found faithful during this season, during this time when we get to live out our faith with relative ease. That we would not waste this season of freedom. But Lord, that we would be wise and and we would be innocent in the way that we're living out our faith and sharing our faith and in the small rejections that we do receive. Lord, help us to experience, even in the smallest of ways, that you are near. Even in the smallest of ways that you're enduring us and keeping us. Even in the smallest of ways that we're being like Jesus. So that if the cost increases, so that even if our, in our lives the cost keeps increasing, Lord, that we would be found faithful. Now to him. Now to him who is able to keep you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.